kids, third through fifth grade, are dismissed to their class. And let's take our Bibles and turn back to the book of First Peter. First Peter, right at the end of the New Testament, we've been studying this letter for a few weeks, and we've been challenged, haven't we? I know I have as I've studied, and just am so impressed by the Word of the Lord for us at this time. There's, there's so much wisdom here, there's so much spiritual application that comes out of this book. Uh, not to mention the, the very powerful, it's basic but it's powerful, reminder uh, at the start of chapter 1 that as believers, as those who have trusted in Christ as our Savior and committed our lives to Him, that we're born again. That we have a new life, that this life is not our old life. And the challenge of 1 Peter and the challenge of most of the New Testament is that our faith in Him is proved to be genuine by how we live. Our faith in Him is proved to be genuine by how we live. Our lives are supposed to be the living evidence that we've been transformed by His mercy. And as you study this book, as we study this book together, I really want you to take notes, uh, a note of, of the strong verbs that the Spirit uses. I know that sounds kind of nerdy like back in English class, look at the verbs, right? How many think that's nerdy? Okay, it's all right if you do, I don't mind. Um, but, but there are very strong intentional verbs that the Spirit chose here. And I really want us to notice them as we go through, and we've concentrated on some of them in the first three studies that we've done, but, but kind of browse through as I, as I speak here, 1 Peter 1, some of the, some of the phrases he uses, that were tested by fire, that were to believe in Him, that were to prepare our minds for action. To, to not be conformed, to be holy, to conduct ourselves in fear, to purify our souls, to fervently love, to put aside sin, to proclaim the excellency of Christ, and to abstain from lust. I mean, this is not just some passive, nice, little, soft letter that just kind of says, do your best. This is, this is a call to action. This is a, a tremendous challenge, and we've only gotten through the first two and a half chapters. It's a tremendous challenge to us as believers to live a certain way. And there's no equivocation. There's no uh, room really for interpretation. Well, does he really mean prepare for action when he says prepare for action? Does he really mean purify ourselves or is there some leeway there? This is a strong and clear expectation that as believers as those who trust Jesus Christ, as those who declare that we are Christians, that we are to live differently. And I think what really impressed me this week is that our lifestyle should be driven by our conviction rather than be in spite of our conviction. In other words, as we have conviction, as we embrace the Word of God, as this is our rule of life, as we yield ourselves to the Spirit, that that conviction should drive our behavior rather than kind of being on the side of our behavior. Because sometimes we act in spite of our convictions. But the problem is that, that God has created us a new life. We have new interests and new desires and new motives and new goals and a new way of thinking. And, and that way, that new way, <clears throat> does not align with our old life. It doesn't match up. And it doesn't match the culture around us. And yet here's the challenge of our passage for this morning. We can't just walk away from everything. We can't just say, well, I have a new life in Christ, so I can't be part of this. 
I don't want to associate with anybody that, that doesn't believe in Christ. And I don't want to be part of, of a culture that's rapidly declining. So I'm just going to, as some people have, just, just move up on a mountainside somewhere and wait for the Lord to return. That's not what we're called to do by any stretch. There's nowhere in Scripture that says, hey, separate yourself physically from the culture so it won't infiltrate you. Instead, it says, be part of the culture and make a difference in the culture and continue to have relationships with family and friends and businesses and social connections. But in your life, be consistent from breaking from your old life while not allowing your old life to influence you. And as you do that, as you break from your old life and don't allow it to influence you, now convince people that the old life doesn't work and they need a new life. Do you follow me? Did I lose you on all the lives and new lives and old lives? You're with me, right? So break from the old, consistently stay away from the old, and as you're broken from the old, tell those that are still in the old, the old doesn't work, I've been there, let me tell you about the new. Now that's what we're called to, and that's the situation that Peter's readers here, chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 13 to 25 in just a moment, that's the situation that his readers found themselves in. He's writing primarily to Christian Jews who have been scattered, who have been driven from Israel. Now they're strangers. They've gone out into other nations and they're facing a lot of opposition and there's even uh, some persecution. And now they're under different governments and different societies and different cultures and they're meeting people that aren't like them and they're seeing uh, different religious beliefs. And everywhere they turn, they're, they're kind of being challenged uh, to live out their faith in, in every aspect of their lives. Now, as I thought through that, and as I kind of went back and researched this, I thought more and more that that really is what we're feeling, isn't it? That, that we don't feel part of this, that we feel like this is just different than I imagined it was going to be, and, and it's not like it used to be, and how do I live now biblically? Because the great challenge here is, how do we live biblically, and how do we make an impact in our culture without our culture dramatically affecting us, or affecting us even at all. And if we really are, are living biblically, and we're grounded in the Word, and we're committed not to conform to the morality of this culture, then at that point, if we've really taken that step in terms of our Christian walk, then we are going to feel like strangers. In fact, if you look back at chapter 1, Peter even uses the word aliens here because what he's saying is nothing about this world should feel like our spiritual home. Every day there should be a, a certain discomfort with living here because our thinking and our heart and our actions are so inconsistent or they should be so inconsistent with what the world values and promotes. And, and that's not arrogance. That's not condescension. Like, look at us. We don't belong here. We're so much better than you. I think the church has done a disservice to its witness by having that attitude sometimes. Well, we're not going to be like them. and We're, we're, we're just going to be different and, and we don't like what's going on. Listen, that, that's going to harm the gospel. This is not arrogance or condescension. It's just a byproduct of being transformed. It's a byproduct of having our minds renewed and being under the filling and control of the Holy Spirit. So really, the challenge for us is that we should feel torn. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, I have this great desire to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. 
Oh, I, I'm jealous of those people that have gone on and are walking with Jesus every day. And, and so much of me just wants to be there. And yet, I'm not there yet. So while I'm here, I have a job. I have a responsibility that God has given us. I'm to follow Jesus and, and conform to his example. And then I'm going to work with people and show them the love and grace of God. And I'm going to tell them that Jesus died and rose again for you. But, but all the while, I'm craving to be up there because this world's not my world. How many feel that? Do you ever feel that during the day? Oh, I just, I just, I don't want to die, but I want to be in heaven. I want to be with the Lord. I wish he'd come back. I just, Lord, come on. I just, I want to be there, not here. And here's the thing. If we don't feel that way, and we don't have that strong passion, not only to tell people, but to live what I would call an alien lifestyle, to be separated from sin, and we've got to look at it and say, am I really separated from sin? Am I really living as the Lord calls me to be? Now, this passage, it's a long introduction, and I've got more before we read. This passage is really very relevant. And again, we're going to be in verses 13 to 25. As, as we live this new life that Christ has secured for us and the Spirit's imparted on us, how do we then live? In the face of moral decline, in the face of increasing opposition, as we see the spiritual path that the world is taking, not only marginalizing Christianity, but, but really slowly and steadily constricting it and kind of squeezing it. And if you're watching the news, and you should be, even though it's depressing, you will see again and again that, that Christianity is not just being told, you stand over here and mind your own business. Increasingly, it is being constricted and squeezed and pulled in until it's going to be really in a vice. And the reason this is happening, I believe, is because the world is recognizing that there are three significant actions that Christians and, and the church have not done with consistency. And I want to encourage you to write these down this morning because I want you to kind of ruminate about them this week. I think it's that the Lord really impressed this upon my heart as I was studying throughout the week. And uh, I just, I feel like this is very important that, that he's given us this. There are three significant actions that Christians and the church have not done with consistency. And because we haven't done them with consistency, because we haven't been faithful to this, the world now is, is cunning, the devil's cunning, he recognizes there's a weakness there. There's an opening where I can now start to infiltrate and start to influence the rest of the world against Christianity and show Christianity as weak and show Christians as weak. So here are the three things. First of all, we have not distinguished ourselves from the world by how we live each day. We have not distinguished ourselves from the world by how we live each day. And most notably, we have not distinguished ourselves in the world by how we live each day, by not separating ourselves from what the world promotes. We have not, as believers, we have not, as churches, separated ourselves from what the world promotes. And because we haven't done that, we are not as distinguishable as we should be. Now, as we've said many times, the world promotes self. The enemy craves 
to inject that desire to infect every human heart with that love of self and to Christians who he knows he can't pull back from heaven. What he wants to do while we're here serving and waiting for the Lord is he wants to to infiltrate that disease back into ourself. He wants to slowly infect us and slowly expose us to love of self again so that we will not walk worthy of the Lord, so that we will not live for Christ, so that we will not be distinguishable from culture for the point of telling culture about the grace of God. So he slowly keeps pulling self back in and saying, this is the appeal, you should take it. Now, the world promotes this love of self through many different things. And I've just listed a couple of my notes, but, but there are so many. But let me just give you a couple. Pride, sexual immorality, crassness, dependency on substances that are harmful to our bodies and our witness, divorce, disunity, alteration of what's natural and right, and greed. And that's just the small list. That's just, that's just the big ones. And yet the world says, this is what you should crave. And as believers, if we don't show every day that knowing Jesus Christ changes those desires and causes us to intentionally, purposefully, and willfully separate ourselves from those things, then people are going to look at us and go, why do I believe? Why do I want to yield myself to Jesus Christ if they look like me? If they embrace the things that I do, if they love the things I do, if they're not distinguishable from me, and they're celebrating with me all the things that promote self, then why bother? Why would I go to church? Why would I read a Bible? Why would I pray? Why would I do any of this? Because they're like me. And that leads to the second problem. We haven't realized, second, that obeying God's word is the most powerful verification of the transforming message of the gospel. Let me say it again. We haven't realized that obeying God's word is the most powerful verification of the transforming message of the gospel. Now, every one of us, I don't think there's one person, although some of you are better than others, I don't think there's one person in this room that doesn't have their own insecurity about talking about Jesus Christ to somebody. There's not one of us that doesn't have some kind of, ooh, how do I do that? And is that intrusive? And what will people think? And what do I say? And and how do I know the right... Listen, all of us have some kind of insecurity. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus has commissioned us to do it. And what will make it so much easier, and what will cause people to be so much more interested, is if they see a palpable distinctiveness in our lives, that we are not what we used to be. Remember, the disciples were fearful and hesitant for so long, but once they saw the risen Christ and they knew that their faith was real and that He was real and that He had won victory over sin, and once the Spirit empowered them, they became bold and confident to speak out and to live lives that were distinctive and different to the point that one of my favorite verses, Acts 4.13, after Peter and John are arrested, the the magistrates say, and and, and wait a second, you've been with Jesus. 
It says that they looked at them and they said to themselves, these men have been with Jesus. That, that wasn't, well, they were part of the disciples. They already knew that. It was that there was something so dramatically distinctive about their lives that they said, we don't have any power against this. How will we fight this? We better go into council and, and kind of huddle and say, we've got to come up with a plan because these guys are stronger than us. So let's go out and kind of command them never to speak of Jesus again. And Peter and John go, are you kidding us? We're not going to stop talking. They recognized that their lives were different. They hadn't become more like the world. They had become more different from the world in order to reach the world for Christ. And that's the third issue which the Christian church has fallen into for the last three decades. Issue number three is we have not trusted the work of the Holy Spirit. We have not trusted the work of the Holy Spirit, so we have negotiated our convictions in the name of social relevance and identification. We've not trusted the Spirit. We've not trusted the Gospel. We've not trusted that it's the power of God and salvation to all who believe, Jew or Greek. We have not done that, so we've negotiated our convictions. I read a very interesting uh, article in the Washington Post this week written by a 20-something blogger named Brett McCracken, who I found out is a graduate of my alma mater, Wheaton College. I knew that because he quoted C.S. Lewis. And he's written two books about the church's misguided quest to be relevant and to practice what he calls cool Christianity. Now, on your bulletin, you'll see that I put in two links. I've never done that before, but I want you to go and read this, these articles. I'll link them up on our Facebook site. But, but these two articles, I think, are, are just incredibly profound. They're sharp, they're direct, but they're profound. And I want, to, I want to quote what he says this morning in part, and this is going to be a long quote, and I need you to really listen well, okay? But, but I, I tried to cut as much as I could, but this is so good, and I think it relates to what we're talking about. He agrees with another very popular 20-something blogger who, who says, Millennials and others are not leaving the church because it's not cool. Millennials and others are leaving the church because, to her words, we don't find Jesus there. And what an indictment that is of the church. But this, this writer, Brett McCracken, asks, for pastors and church leaders so concerned with the survival of the church amidst the glut of adapter-die hype, is asking millennials what they want church to be and adjusting accordingly really your best bet? Are we really to believe that today's hashtagging YOLO-oriented, if you don't know what YOLO is, you're old like me, Okay. You only live once, okay? Everybody got that now? So when your teenager says YOLO, you're like, Rolo, what? what? What does that mean, okay? So are we really to believe that today's hashtagging, YOLO-oriented, selfie-obsessed generation of millennials has more wisdom to offer about the church than those who've thought about and faithfully served the church decade after decade amidst all the warts, challenges, and ups and downs? Part of the problem is the hubris of every generation which thinks it's discovered once and for all the right way of doing things. But a deeper problem is that Christianity has become too obsessed with how it's perceived. Just like the Photoshop-savvy millennials she's so desperate to retain, the church is meticulously concerned with her image, monitoring, monitoring what people are saying about her and taking cues from that. Listen, this is a great part. But at the end of the day, the gospel is defined with little regard 
to whatever itch people think Christianity should scratch. Consumerism asserts that people want what they want and get what they want for a price. It's all about me. But to position the gospel within this consumerist framework is to open the door to all sort of distortions and to each his own variations. If Christianity aims to sell a message that scratches a pluralism of itches, what a great phrase that is, how in the world will a cohesive, orthodox, unified gospel survive? He goes on to say, I'm not saying the church should never listen to the audience or pay attention to data and trends. It's just that more often than not, the just tell us what you want us to be approach does more harm than good. Turning the church into a shape-shifting chameleon with ever-diminishing ecclesiology, ecclesiological confidence and cultural legitimacy. It smacks of desperation and weakness. He concludes very brilliantly, As a millennial, if I'm truly honest with myself, what I really need from the church is not another yes-man entity enabling my hubris and giving me what I want. Rather, I need truth that transcends me, something that doesn't change to fit me in my whims, but changes me to be the Christ-like person I was created to be. Then he says, and I'm done with this, because if we're interested in Christianity in a serious way, it's not because it's easy or trendy or popular. It's because Jesus himself is appealing and what he says rings true. It's because the world we inhabit is utterly phony, ephemeral, narcissistic, image-obsessed, and sex-drenched. And we want an alternative. It's not because we want more of the same. That's powerful. A 27-year-old has that insight about his own generation. And he is saying to us, if the church will just live by biblical conviction, if believers will just live by biblical conviction, the world will become more interested in the gospel. But if we adapt, if we try to say, what do you want? How can we help you? How, how can we be exactly what you want us to be? He says it's lost. People, people aren't attracted to that. And that's the point we're making from First Peter. Distinctive, different, separate, but not exclusive. Separate because we love Christ. And inclusive because we want people to come to Christ. Now that's what Peter is writing here. And now we're going to read. As we do this, as we recognize this, it is also very important that we have the right mindset as we do it. Because if there's any arrogance, if there's any disrespect, if there's any stubbornness, not only will people be turned away, but they will rightly criticize us. And look how Peter explains this. Let's start in verse 13. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king or the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, but don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. Use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows 
when suffering unjustly? For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what's right and suffer for it, and you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we're healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now, there's no way that these were easy words for Peter to write. There's no way that he was able to say, hey, this is fun. Let's talk now about submitting. Even though the Holy Spirit's giving him the words, even though as he writes, the Spirit is leading his pen and giving the words and putting exactly what he wants to say. As Peter's writing it, as Peter is reading what the Spirit's giving him, there, there is a confrontation of the major flaw in Peter's character. The major flaw in Peter's character was his stubborn self-will. And now he is writing to believers who are scattered, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. Now that word submit, or some Bibles have subject yourself, that, that's a Greek military word. It means to arrange troops in a military fashion under the command of a leader. In non-military terms, it meant a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, and assuming responsibility. In other words, it is being subordinate. It is yielding and submitting our control to somebody else. And I want you to notice the context back in verse 13. He says that we're to become disciples who live submissively in any circumstance. Now that's one of the more challenging directives that we have from Scripture. If for no other reason, then the world makes it so hard because they're constantly looking for any reason to criticize us and undermine our credibility as believers. But this call here is to, is to submit to every human institution as a test of our character and as a test of our beliefs. Even when we see the corruption in government, even when we see the, the, the changes in moral laws, and even when we see hostility toward biblical Christianity. But we can't sit here today and say, well, this is the worst time ever. This, this is worse than any time in human history. Look at what is going on. Look at how culture's changing. Look at, this is, this is awful. This is disgusting. How, how can we do this? Listen, let me tell you about the Roman Empire. Let me tell you about the people that Peter is writing to right then. Back then, the government was all-powerful. They were the, the, the emperor, the leader, he was unquestioned. And if there was dissension, if anybody disagreed, the military would come along and cut you down. At least 35% of people were slaves, and they were considered property. They had no legal uh, value as persons, and whenever the owner felt like it, he could take them out and torture them and execute them. In terms of morality, sexuality was a source of prosperity for the state. Individuals could practice magic to try to reach and improve their erotic levels. 
Prostitution and pornography were legal and were prolific. It was seen as normal for men to be attracted to both sexes and and to be promiscuous, and there was very little censure of any kind of morality. The popular form of entertainment and theater was called mimus. It included political satire, risque language and jokes, sex scenes, striptease, and trained bears. I don't know where the trained bears fit into all that, but okay. Christianity was seen as a form of atheism. It was seen as superstitious. There was a a plurality of religion. There was worship of many gods, and believers were uh, persecuted uh, increasingly. So the government was too strong and involved. Morality was declining, and Christianity was actively being suppressed. Does that sound familiar? And yet it was worse. So when we read this passage, we say, okay, well, our situation is very similar to 1 Peter. But the Spirit's instruction here is timeless. And he says the way to do the will of God and to silence objections and to follow Christ's example is to be in subordination to those in authority and to act on our freedom as bond slaves. Now, what does that mean? Let's break it apart and we'll pray. Because there are a lot of important applications and we're just kind of touching on the passage this morning. But let's focus just for a few minutes on on four important applications. And we'll just go through them about a minute each. First of all, we see in verse 15 that respecting authority silences people's criticism. Respecting authority silences people's criticism. Paul says that, uh, excuse me, Peter says that by doing right... In other words, by not being aggressive, not being judgmental, living at peace, doesn't mean we can't speak our minds, doesn't mean we can't have convictions, doesn't mean we can't work to offset the changes that are in our culture that are are damaging the spirituality of our nation. Doesn't mean we can't do that. It just means that we have to be careful how we do it because if we do it in a way that is respectful and loving and honoring to the Lord, what it will do is silence the ignorance of foolish people who criticize us. And this is is where we're going to tend to be criticized. We're going to tend to be seen as crazy and judgmental and extreme, right? You ever heard those words? Uh, People that are on the extreme end of of the discussion and and are very judgmental and harsh and, and... and just, and just can't stop criticizing what's going on in culture. If, if that's the world's impression of us as Christians, and there are some very bad examples of this, if that's their impression of us as Christians, then we're not going to get the gospel to them. So Peter says, look at verse 15 and 16, our character needs to be exemplary. We need to be able to talk about and defend our convictions with love and respect. When we post something on Facebook, we need to be discerning. When we put a link up there and make some kind of comment and non-believing friends see that, they need to see discernment and they need to see a genuine love for people and a genuine desire for people to understand truth rather than us saying, well, look at this. Right? And frankly, this hit me this week, if we showed as much passion for telling people about the gospel as we do for getting frustrated about the state of the world and the direction of our country, we wouldn't have to worry about the opposition. 
Think about the things that we get passionate about. Oh, tell me about If we had the same passion to say to our neighbor, do you know Jesus Christ? Can I tell you how God's changed me? Can I, can I, can I buy you dinner and tell you what's happened in my life? If we had the same kind of passion that we had about other things, the opposition would diminish. Second, we're told in verse 17, to honor all people and love the brotherhood. The second part of that applies to the body, but the first one's all-inclusive. Now, when it says honor all people, that doesn't mean praise them. It doesn't mean approve what they're doing. Instead, it means, literally, to show value for their lives. In other words, to see people the way Christ sees them. When he gives us the commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, when we think about Jesus coming off the boat and being moved with compassion as he saw people as sheep without a shepherd, if that's what drives us, then the gospel will be more effective. Now, you might say, why is it important to honor all people? Why do we have to show this this deference and this love for people because they're mean and nasty and they don't love the Lord and they're they're living in a way that is that is just disgusting. Listen, the the issue is what does the gospel tell us to do? And if we really want to advance the gospel, how is that going to happen if we dishonor people and look down on them and judge them and say I can't believe the way you live? We have to see them with the mind of Christ. And if we're judgmental and harsh and critical and kind of arrogant about it, we have no credibility, we have no ability to talk to them because they're going to say, well, they think that I'm lesser than them and I have no desire to hear what they have to say. Just because people don't believe in Christ yet doesn't mean that God doesn't love them and that they don't need the gospel as much as we did. Somebody witnessed to you at some point, whether it was a pastor from a pulpit or somebody talking to you personally. Somebody said to you, do you know Jesus Christ? Somebody said to you, here's the gospel. Because that person, whoever they were, had a heart for you. They may not have even known you at the time, but they had a heart for you. Heart enough to stand and say, I want to tell you about Jesus Christ. We have to have the same heart for those that are around us. We're called to love others as Christ did. And Christ loved us so much that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And if we can't muster that love in our hearts, then we have to do it simply out of fear for the Lord. Because we can't honor the king if we hate his subjects. We can't say, oh, King Jesus, I love you so much, but I hate the people in your kingdom. Oh, I'm so much better than them. They're awful. How could I possibly relate to them? But Lord, I love you. God says, "Uh uh-uh, you don't. If you love me, you love others. If you love me, you have a heart for others and you want to tell them about me. Third command, verse 16, don't use your spiritual freedom as a covering for evil. We could preach 10 or 12 messages out of this, but let's do it in three minutes. There are two kinds of spiritual liberty. There's the freedom to do what we want, That's number one. And number two is the freedom to do what we should do instead of what we want to do. Freedom number one, I'm going to do what I want. Period. End of discussion. I don't want to think about it anymore. 
Freedom number two, I want to do certain things, but for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel, I'm going to do what God tells me to do instead of what my natural man wants me to do. I'm going to discipline myself and sacrifice because I love the Lord. Now, freedom, as it's designed, defined by Scripture in reference to our actions, is not a liberty to practice sin. And if you've ever had a discussion about this with somebody or argued this, sometimes people say, well, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Yes, you are, but you're not free to sin. God doesn't give us liberty so we can then turn around and practice the things that he just pulled us out of bondage over. He says, I'm giving you liberty so that you can walk with me. This is not a pretext to commit sin. You've been forgiven of that sin, released from its control. So it's a mockery of me if you then turn around and commit the same sin I just delivered you from. Spiritual liberty is to live righteously. It is to live according to the word of God. And the spirit has been given to us to warn us and convict us and restrain us and stop us from using our liberty to walk back into the jail cell and say, I love it here. Because that's what we're doing. So let's not argue, I have liberty to do whatever I want. And, and yeah, I know what it says, that, that the weaker brother and all that. But really, it doesn't matter to me. No, we are free so that we can walk righteously. That's why dying to self daily and yielding to the Spirit is so vital because when we do that, then He can control our thoughts and our actions and our habits and our ministry. And that leads to the last application. Look at verses 16 and 21. We're called to be bond slaves and to follow Christ's example. Now, we've studied this concept before. Bond slave is a servant who willingly and purposefully submits themselves to the master for life. They're to be in total compliance to the master and everything about their life is yielded to to be pleasing to the master. Now, assessment time. Is that how you and I have lived this week? Is that how we've lived? Have we lived as bond slaves? Or has there been compromise and carelessness and callousness? When we're told to comply, when we're told to conform to the word of God, when we're told to yield ourselves to the spirit, do do we ignore that? Do we avoid it? Do we suppress it? Do we justify it? And and we might say, well, you don't know the people that I'm around and, and I have to be part of that so I can influence them. No, the spirit doesn't give us any out here on that. He doesn't say, well, depending on your environment, you should adapt yourself. If people are mean and nasty, instead of kind and gracious, well, then you can be a jerk to them because it feels good and you've got to defend yourself. No, it says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And you know what? By submitting ourselves, we, we disarm their relational ammunition uh, uh, that, that is critical and that is harsh and that it's hammering us. We either feed people bullets to shoot us or, or we disarm them. And the way to disarm them, according to Scripture, is not to yell back and not to say, it's to say, okay, let me show you the love of Christ. People go, what? No, wait a second, you jerk. It's good. 
That's a hard message. But then he calls us and we're done. He says, follow the example of Christ. You've been called for this purpose, verse 21, since Christ also suffered for you. He left you an example to follow in his steps. The call to be subordinate only makes sense. And listen, we're going to touch on this next week when we start talking about marriage. Yikes. The call to be subordinate only makes sense if we remember who is worthy of that submission. We just sang two songs before the message. You're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy, you're worthy. He is the only one who's worthy. Why? Because he gave up his rights so he could take our place on the cross. That's what Philippians 2 says. He set aside his rights. If there's anybody that could have come down and been mad and say, no way I'm dying for you people. Forget it. You're putting me on a cross? Are you kidding? No, I'm the God of the universe. You're not touching me. He had every right righteously to say that. And yet it said he laid aside his rights. And he allowed them to take him and put him on a cross. Because he saw your face and my face. And he said, I'm going to sacrifice for them. He committed no sin. He spoke no deceit. When people spit on him and reviled him and mocked him, he didn't say a word. When they accused him, he didn't ridicule them back. He just trusted victory is coming and I am going to surrender myself to this and I am going to be subordinate to the will of the Father and I'm going to the cross. And now he says, now you do the same. Now you follow my example and walk in my steps Because when you do, look at my example, when you do, the world will be changed. If you do this, believer, if you do this, church, the world will be changed forever. But if you don't, nothing's going to happen. If Jesus stops short of the cross, we're not here today. If Jesus went all the way up to it and said, I can't do it. I don't want to submit. I I don't want to do this. These people aren't worth it. I'm not going to do it. This room is not open. We're home watching TV or out on a boat or doing whatever. Because he went to the cross, everything changed. Our lives changed for all eternity. Now he says, walk in my steps. And you'll see the world change. Let's close our eyes. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the message that you've given to us and the challenge that we have this morning to be subordinate. Father, it is a difficult challenge for us because our human will is very strong. And because the world is appealing And because we don't want to be put out and we don't want to be embarrassed and we're nervous about what it means for us. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would take away those hesitations. And you would breathe a fresh desire in our hearts 
to submit ourselves fully to the will of the Father, to submit ourselves fully to you, to follow the example of Christ. Because, Lord, as we do that, people will notice the distinctiveness of our lives and they will hear the distinctiveness of our words and they will know the consistency between word and action that the gospel is true, that the gospel does transform. Lord, I pray this morning for every one of us, myself included, that you would challenge us in this area. That you would test us how we have done this in our lives and how we are going to change. Because, Lord, we can't hear this word and walk out passively and say, well, that was nice. It doesn't require anything of me. You've called us out now, Lord. And I pray right now in our hearts that we would submit our will to yours. And we would see you do a new work. An amazing work in our lives and in this body and in this city. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your gentle grace on our lives. You don't give us what we deserve. You give us what we don't deserve. And I pray you would work now in our midst. Father, a fresh work now this August in our midst that we would serve you well and honor you and please you in all that we do. We thank you and praise you and we love you in Jesus' name.